Hey there, and welcome to Intrigue Out Loud. When Carlos Marone, a 43-year-old lawyer based in Miami, landed in Venezuela in April of 2018, he was expecting to meet the kidnappers who had called his phone days earlier to inform him that his father had been taken hostage. Instead, when he arrived at the airport in Caracas, he was detained by Venezuelan security agents. They asked him to confess to crimes that he thought he never committed. And when he refused, he was tortured, beaten with a metal baton and asphyxiated, and detained without trial for two years. In the reporter William Newman's 2022 book, Things Are Never So Bad They Can't Get Worse, he shares the story of Jose Vicente Haro, a lawyer known for defending political dissidents, who was violently kidnapped by the notorious special action forces at a checkpoint, and asked by an interrogator, so you think there's torture in Venezuela? Before being beaten with the butt of a weapon. These stories are hardly unique, and yet the leader of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, whose government has overseen this brutality, is now being welcomed back into the diplomatic fold, sometimes with reluctance, other times with open arms. And while his reemergence has become something of an inevitability, it's this variation in enthusiasm that's laid bare some deep divisions in South American politics. Here to discuss those divisions and what they might mean for the region is Carolina Jimenez Sandoval. She is the president of the Washington Office on Latin America, aka WOLA, a former research director at Amnesty International and a citizen of Venezuela. And best of all, she joins me next. Hi, Carolina. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Ethan. So last week, uh, Brazilian President Lula da Silva welcomed the 12 leaders of South America to Brasilia for a summit. In recent years, these summits have featured only 11 leaders. So what's the math here? Who was added back to the mix this time around? Well, I think the first thing we must say is that his initiative is a welcome initiative. You know, I mean, uh, uh, Latin America is, is a region with plenty of challenges, and it is worth trying to solve those challenges together. Um, but the region keeps changing a lot politically, correct? And, and what you have is, you know, um, presidents with different ideologies, uh, presidents with different uh, understandings of democracy, etc. And I think one of the main challenges that we saw at the Brazilian summit was precisely uh, the lack of an agreement, apparently, on what constitutes, uh, you know, mm. shared democratic values and how to move forward uh, to build a region that is uh, politically stronger and where leaders can um, support each other and cooperate to solve common program, problems, uh, but where there are uh, clearly a lot of disagreements on, on some things that are very fundamental for the region's as well. So we're, we're talking, of course, about Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro. Uh, when was the last time he was invited to Brazil? Yeah, no, I think um, it was uh, probably 2010. Uh, we're talking about a very, a very long time. Uh, in, in 2010, he was uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, correct? Uh, he Chavez was still alive. I don't know if it was 2010. I have to check the last year. Maduro himself went to Brazil, right? Uh, but when he, uh, you know, um, became president in 2013, and there were, you know, a lot of uh, calls about the legitimacy of that election. And then eventually uh, in the election in 2018, that's when the opposition decided not to participate. 
things became much more difficult uh, for Maduro and for other leaders to recognize him, correct? And then we have the 2019, um, you know, rise of the so-called interim government, etc. So when you look at the last decade in which Maduro has been in power, it's been uh, a decade of turmoil and a decade of very complex and difficult relationships with its neighbors. So during the Bolsonaro years, it was unthinkable <laughs> that Maduro would be welcome in Brazil. And I think the change from Bolsonaro to, to the Lula administration signals a very a different way of treating uh, Maduro in the region. Well, so for this conversation, I want to focus more on the regional response that you're highlighting more than Venezuela's internal politics. But just to set the scene, I mean, what made Maduro's appearance at the summit so controversial? You mentioned some irregularities with vote counts over the past two elections. What else does Maduro stand accused of? But that's the thing. I mean, in the last... I would say in the last, especially in this last administration, since, since he became president, he was re-elected in 2018, although, you know, it's, it's not an election that most found to be transparent or fair. Uh, Maduro has become a, a very repressive leader, and that is uh, very well documented. Basically, all human rights organizations, both at the national and at the international level, have uh, provided evidence, you know, of what is considered a systematic policy of repression of those who are members of the opposition or, or perceived oppositions, like against students who are not really members of political parties, but criticize Maduro and, you know, many of them have ended up in jail, etc. So the situation has become so bad in terms of human rights violations that Venezuela stands today as the only country in the Americas where there is an open investigation by the International Criminal court for alleged crimes against humanity. So when a country, you know, is in the spotlight for the wrong reasons, for its human rights record, but also for what is being also documented for its democratic backsliding and his, you know, Maduro's crackdown on the opposition, uh, he can hardly be perceived as a democratic leader. And, and, and I think we all need to recognize that he is uh, uh, seen and rightly so as an authoritarian leader. So I think that's what was, you know, so noisy at the summit. It was supposed to be a summit of democratic leaders, but you have one leader that is very, very questioned uh, because of his human rights and lack of democracy record. Right. And just to list off a few stats pertaining to Maduro's record, 15,000 plus politically motivated arrests since 2014, more than 280 political detainees currently being held uh, an ongoing migration crisis that's forced millions of people from the countries. We'll get back to that. But Lula said something very interesting in inviting Maduro. He said that everything that you've listed, everything that I have now listed, is part of a narrative constructed by the U.S. and its allies. Are you saying now that that narrative is Real? It was, you know, was Lula right to call it a constructed nar narrative? I think those are some of the most unfortunate words I have heard Lula uh, say in a very long time, because uh, you know, when you say that a narrative is constructed, what you're saying is that the narrative uh, doesn't um, apply to reality, right? If you say, "Well, let me construct a narrative," uh, clearly, um, you know, uh, basing the narrative on what 
you know, many in the US will call alternative facts, right? No reality, but uh, other type of information, etc. Uh, we have, we were very critical uh, about his remarks because remarks like that ignore the victims. I mean, I think, and, and I appreciate that you, you, you brought up some data. I mean, all those thousands of people, you know, who have been arbitrarily detained, all those who remain detained, the people who have seen their children, you know, executed in the streets of Caracas or Barquisimeto because they went to a, a demonstration, exist. They're real. They're not a constructed narrative. So I think it's very unfortunate that Lula chose to say that everything that has been documented, everything that organizations, uh, you know, working on human rights have been saying for years is, is just a narrative. It is not a narrative. It's, it's part of Venezuela's reality and uh, unfortunately a reality that still hasn't seen any accountability. So there seem to be a few reasons why Lula may have done this. There are practical reasons around building regional unity that you've mentioned. But but first, if I could invite you to put on your most cynical hat for a moment, why do you think Lula invited him? I mean, he is a man who's campaigned on a promise to restore Brazil's democracy. This seems like a pretty far divergence from that pledge. I think for many leaders in South America, uh, and 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 in listen, I I actually agree with this view. Um, in the past few years, the uh, a strategy, you know, to to achieve a transition to democracy in Venezuela has been to isolate uh, the Maduro government and to sanction the Venezuelan economy. Correct. What can we say a few years later, you know, since the moment that strategy started to now? Well, clearly that the strategy did not work because Maduro is in power, and and he's actually consolidated power. Correct. So if this strategy did need no work, we need a new strategy. This is less cynical than I was expecting. Yes. Yeah. That's not cynical <laughs> at all. This is, this is, a, yeah, I'm not very good at being cynical. So I'm giving you what I, what, you know, the analysis that we have trying to understand why Lula, you know, said what he said and which, by the way, has been very costly. Uh, politically for him. So you say, well, why did he, you know, take the risk of saying something like this? Uh, so I think they they just want a major shift in the strategy. And then now they want to pull Maduro in to the concert of, you know, of uh, nations uh, as a way to be able to tell him face to face that he has to give uh, some at least guarantees to make sure that that transition happens peacefully. Um, and Granted, we can agree with that logic, but I do not think there is a need, you know, to go and, and openly say that that uh, everything that has been documented around Maduro is a, is a constructed narrative. So probably the intention, if that was the intention, uh, is not a bad one, uh, but the way he said it is, is truly a pity. And I insist, I think he's created a lot of trouble at home for Lula, but also trouble for his leadership at the regional and global level. There there could be other practical reasons for, for Lula's uh, decision to invite and honor Maduro. Of course, Brazil and Venezuela share a long border, uh, 2,200 kilometers, and Brazil plays host to more than 400,000 Venezuelan migrants, right? I think both Colombia and, and Brazil 
uh, because I think the Petro government has, you know, also taken this pragmatic approach about welcoming Maduro again to, you know, and, and, and supporting. And, Without some of the more flowery language, right? On the contrary, and, you know, the first meeting between Petro and Maduro, Petro said some pretty strong things in the in the press conference. So, to, and they were welcomed, you know, by many people. Um, I, I think you you do point uh, out uh, something very important. These these countries have all become host to thousands, hundreds of thousands, and in the case of Colombians, to millions of Venezuelan refugees. And clearly, you know, no country was ready. Uh, for for the Venezuela refugee crisis, you know, it's one of the three top crises uh, of forced displacement in the world, only close to the one in Syria and Ukraine, and these are two countries facing war. Um, so I think it is uh, very important for them to ensure uh, Venezuela is at a stable democracy rather than an unstable, uh, you know, country. Uh, because as long as uh, Venezuela is into a moil, the refugee crisis will continue, and it has a profound impact on bordering countries, uh, hosting thousands of millions of refugees. I know that you are currently in Mexico City, and I want to give you time at the end of the conversation to talk a little bit about what you're doing there and, and the work of WOLA. Uh, but, but first, I mean, you've pointed out some of the contradictions here in Lula's approach, uh, that he's you know defended the invite on this premise um, of fostering regional unity and that doing so requires countries to sacrifice certain principles and ideologies in favor of shared interests. But has that message resonated with other South American leaders? You mentioned Petro. I mean, how did others respond to Lula's comments? Well, of course, the message was, as I said at the beginning, noisy. I mean, it created noise, you know, because the until now, many, many Latin American leaders have also been very critical of, of the Maduro government. And uh, as expected, some leaders reacted and reacted quickly uh, to basically criticize Lula. And I think the cases of President uh, Boris uh, from Chile and President Lacalle from Uruguay were very relevant. You know, they were in Brazil, hosted by the Brazilian president, and yet went publicly um, with their criticism of, of Lula's remark. Uh, Boris said that he could not be speaking about uh, a constructed narrative, uh, a constructed narrative when in Chile, you know, they were hosting thousands of refugees who were a clear indicator of, of, of a terrible situation back in Venezuela. And then, you know, La Calle went also and said, you know, come on, let's not pretend that things are uh, great in Venezuela, uh, uh, pretending it's it's it's, uh, it's something that is no good for for the region. So both of them were highly critical of Lula in Lula's home, you know, and that I think shows uh, the difficulties in in drafting a new strategy on Venezuela, which can be so pragmatic, like like Lula tried this strategy to be. I think uh, Chile's position has been perhaps the most um, moderate one. Uh, President Boris is um, very critical of human rights violations in Venezuela, but he's also critical of the strategy that tried to isolate Venezuela and sanctions its economy. And what, what we felt when we heard President Boris is that actually it's not too difficult. You know, you can criticize a government 
because of its human rights record. And at the same time, have a strategy uh, where you are able to speak to the authorities and mediate between, you know, the political conflict. And so, uh, so as we speak, the summit is is being discussed around this incident rather than it's, you know, on merit or or right, the conclusions or the agreements they reached. I mean, the whole the Maduro affair uh, clearly was the defining feature of the summit. Yeah, and Lula has grand ambitions for the region, right? I mean, he's he's talked about common currencies, uh, common markets. And I think I think it's interesting to contrast Boric and Lula because they're both from the same political team, right? But there's something peculiar about President Da Silva, right? He's leaned into this role as global peacemaker, someone who can poke and prod uh, Western foreign, foreign policymakers, challenge some of their assumptions, but this feels like more of a shove than a nudge. I mean, how is it received in Western capitals? You know, I think we need to remember that we, uh, Lula is serving his third term as president. And he is, um, at this point, you know, he's an elder statesman, correct? Um, he's been president twice. He's been in prison. He's been a union leader. I mean, he he's, I think, I don't know how old is Lula, but I think he's probably in his 70s, right? So this is a leader at the, probably at the end of his, you know, uh, uh, leadership cycle. And I think he, on the one hand, one feels that uh, he probably feels more free, you know, to speak his mind, to advance his agenda as he views world affairs or Latin American affairs. And he has, uh, in a way, also less constraints. He's not going to run for re-election, most likely, right? He's on his third term. Uh, so uh, Lula does want Brazil to be a global leader. He said it very clearly. Brazil is back. You know, because with Bolsonaro, certainly Brazil wasn't a welcome global player. Uh, and he wants to play that role. Uh, but so he does it on his own terms because of, you know, him being a, a leader in power for the third time, because of his um, image as an elder statement, etc. He does it on his own terms. And I think that's very, very, very different uh, from, from, you know, President Boris in Chile, basically. Yeah. The Economist pointed out in a piece earlier this week that uh, in 2005, two years into uh, Lula's first term, when Hugo Chavez was still president in Venezuela, Lula declared that Venezuela had, quote, an excess of democracy. So this represents a pattern, too. But Maduro's reemergence on the world stage hasn't been limited to Latin America. He was in Turkey for President Erdogan's inauguration and in Saudi Arabia this weekend, just days before the U.S. Secretary of State arrived for a visit. What's the goal of this global uh, 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 PR campaign from Maduro? Well, Maduro and Erdogan have been allies all these years, so it's not a surprise to see Maduro in Turkey. He's been going to Turkey all these years. Uh, which is always, you know, which always shows also that our, our analysis exclusively based on ideology it can be very limited. You cannot really say that Erdogan is a left-wing leader, correct? Uh, and the same with Iran, you know, it's another big ally of, of, of Maduro. And in Saudi Arabia, of course, I mean, there is, these are, you know, I mean, Venezuela and Saudi Arabia have been talking to each other 
forever because of a very strong connection based on oil. And the relationship has always been very pragmatic between both countries as well. Um, but it is true that, you know, Maduro was the uh, was in a major global summit, right, where and in the uh, about the environment, which is, again, um, what will I say? Um, <laughs> ironic. Ironic, yeah, that's a word. Considering that the whole issue around the, the Orinoco arc, right, the, 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 the mining, the exploitation and the violence around... Uh, the violation to a, a, a free environment, the, the right to a free environment happened in Venezuela on a daily basis. So, but there, there he was, you know, and he and he met Macron um, and he met uh, John Kerry, I think. Some would say he ambushed Macron and John Kerry uh, because he, you know. And worth watching the video to see. <laughs> it's worth watching the videos. And I have, I don't remember the, the Twitter account of, you know, the Venezuelan president being so active with videos. But during those, like, it was constant information saying, he met Macron, he met Kerry, he met world leaders, he's, he's back to the world stage so there was clearly um you know a, a pr campaign happening when he went to the summit and and but the same goes for his trips to turkey and to saudi arabia they're all over venezuela media at the moment uh, so uh, what i think will be interesting is to see maduro honestly in bogota or 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 maduro eventually in Washington, D.C. Those will, those will be the things that will determine, you know, if Maduro is truly back uh, and well-received in the world stage. Because on the one hand, Washington still doesn't recognize him as president of Venezuela, which is a very unique <laughs> legal situation. Uh, he did cancel his trip to Argentina um, for the uh, summit uh, in, and, you know, sent his... Uh, his Minister of Foreign Affairs, and apparently a lot had to do with diaspora groups in Buenos Aires protesting in front of the hotel. And they said, if Maduro comes, we are all going to come out and be very noisy. Well, imagine Bogota, how many millions of Venezuelans live in Bogota, and a lot of those people mm. clearly do not support Maduro. So it is, it is to be seen if he can truly travel to every country with at ease. I'm, I'm not sure we're there yet. Uh, but he being in, in, in Brazil was huge for his political strategy of showing that his government is recognized as a legitimate government and he is, as any other president, welcome um, mm. in, in every country. But that, that's, that's, that's his strategy. Uh, and again, I don't think that travel and, and going to other countries invited by presidents or in a summit imply, you know, that he's a democratic president. Those are two different things. It seems like one of the things connecting Venezuela to these three countries we've talked about now, Turkey, uh, Brazil, and Saudi Arabia, are that these are three erstwhile U.S. allies, or at least nominal U.S. allies that have grown a bit skeptical of U.S. leadership. And in Iran, which you also mentioned, Maduro has an ally who has worked tirelessly to sanctions-proof its economy from the U.S. And the sanctions are have underpinned the U.S. strategy response to Maduro over the last few years. Is the broad global willingness to engage with Maduro undermining that sanctions campaign? I think there is a very clear message uh, from Latin America around sanctions. And I, and, and I actually see President Boris actually agreeing with this. Um, 
that you know the sanctions have not worked and they have hurt the people and no Maduro, correct? And uh, what we think in civil society is the humanitarian crisis the country faces right now pre-existed, correct? I mean, if you look at Venezuela in 2015, 16, the economy was terrible and people were queuing for food and the, the levels of scarcity was were very high to the extent that Ban Ki-moon, then general of, you know, secretary general of the UN came out and said, okay, Venezuela is facing a humanitarian crisis. This was before sanctions, but sanctions made it worse. And there is no denying that sanctions really made this what was already a humanitarian crisis worse. And 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 yes, I mean the the economy uh, ended up collapsing the way it, you know it's collapsing the last few years. Uh, I think in in I think uh, Latin American leaders, especially if, you know from the spectrum of of, of the left, uh, decry sanctions. Um, they they oppose to sanctions. They oppose to sanctions uh, in principle, whether they are against Venezuela or against any, any other country. They oppose sanctions because they see sanctions as U.S. interventionism. Correct. Mm. Uh, so I, I think it isn't surprising to see many leaders calling uh, the U.S. to lift all sanctions against Venezuela, especially when we see a turn to the left in some Latin American countries. That said, I think there is also a recognition that uh, because elections are coming in 2024, Venezuela will face uh, presidential elections. This is a very um, unique moment for the country. Um, one that is both a threat and an opportunity. And what, you know, what Washington has said is that they are willing to leave sanctions if they see concessions uh, from the Venezuelan government to at least guarantee some, um, you know, very basic um, measures that will make the elections more free and fair. So I think the U.S. way of calibrating sanctions, uh, rather than just imposing sanctions forever until Maduro leave, which was the previous administration's strategy, is a more rational one. Uh, but I think it's important, you know, that, that, that the U.S. also understands that time is passing and this is urgent. Um, 2024 is tomorrow and uh, uh, presidential, uh, the presidential term in Venezuela is six years, correct? I mean, if we don't, you know, if, if the country is not able uh, to have a transition to democracy in 2024, the next presidential elections will be in 2030. And that's a very long time for Venezuelans, you know, um, uh, to wait. So it's a big question how the sanction regime is going to play out in the next few months. Today's show is sponsored by Drizzly. Drizzly is the largest online marketplace for alcohol in North America with over 100 million customers, and they're there for life's most important moments and the people that create them. Drizzly partners with thousands of retailers in more than 1,400 cities to empower them to grow their businesses and make the good times even better. Save $5 on your first order when you click the link in the show notes. 
Back to the regional response, just a few more questions and zooming out here a bit to think about Latin American democracy. Are you worried by the degree to which, contrary to Lula's stated aim of, of you know, uh, muting ideology, the reaction to Maduro seems to have been so clearly shaped by ideology? In other words, Lula seems to be very good at recognizing threats to democracy by right-wing politicians and less good at recognizing those threats from his fellow left-wingers. Absolutely. I mean, it is a major concern um, because what that shows is that there is not a, a common and shared um, understanding of democracy. Right. Right. Democracy can be from the left and from the right as long as you respect the basic tenets of democracy. Uh, but if you are only going to, you know, look at uh, the problems democracy face when the 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 other country is led by someone who's your ideological opponent, then you don't have a shared understanding of democracy, and that is a very and a major concern. And we've seen it in the in the Peruvian case very clearly, right? Um, because you know, in the crisis in Peru, um, now ex-president um, Castillo attempted, you know, a self-coup d'etat. And there is agreement on that. The Inter-American Human Rights Commission said it very clearly in its report, he broke the constitutional order. And then Dina Boluarte became president. And, and honestly, it's been terrible for Peru because of the level of repression that she is, uh, you know, leading. So when we hear Petro or, or uh, AMLO, you know, in, in Mexico, calling for Castillo to be reinstated, it's hard to understand <laughs> why they want someone who broke the constitutional order uh, to be reinstated as president. So that, that shows that, that that common understanding on democracy has been broken. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, interests are based more on ideological preferences at times than on democratic values. And that is a major concern because what we know is that presidents will continue changing. Yeah. I mean, we have Petro and Lula and Boris in power right now, but what happens in a few years? So are we going to go back, you know, to other, to other, to a different understanding of democracy? We do need uh, to continue insisting that uh, democratic values are uh, for all, you know, not not just for you, your friends and and different for your enemies. I mean, you you need just like human rights, you know, there are no human rights violations and bad human rights violations. Uh, there are human rights violations and they occur everywhere yeah. and um, to different degree and to a different extent. Uh, so calling out human rights violations when they happen to occur in a country where the president is your enemy and then being silent when they occur in a country where a president is your friend, it's, it's, it's honestly one of the best, uh, the worst scenarios we can have in the region. Well, last question, Carolina. You're in Mexico City as we speak, and you've been visiting uh, with migrants at the border with Guatemala and Honduras. Uh, what's at stake here? How is how important is it that Latin American leaders get this right and are able to build some stability in Venezuela? What is at stake is the life of people. And, and I put this and I said very bluntly so people understand, you know, Venezuela is a country with a human rights crisis and a humanitarian emergency, okay? It's a country when one out of three people are food insecure. So 
the the refugee crisis is is the expression you know of the internal crisis and it's an expression that is painful and tragic because what we see when we visit borders and when we visit countries in central america or even mexico is very vulnerable people i mean we see families with babies who have crossed the darien gap and the darien gap is is a very hostile environment for anybody a place where a lot of violence is happening but just imagine a kid you know uh, a family a pregnant woman crossing mm. this hostile environment uh, last year UNICEF said that 40,000 uh, children crossed the Darien 40,000 and 50% of those were children under 5 so uh, imagine you know what it is for a kid uh, or for a baby to to be transiting this very uh, risky uh, journey uh, to try to reach you know a place where they can be protected uh, is is very hard so our call has always been that uh, it is that, that we need to address both things we need to address the push factors and this is addressing the venezuelan internal political and humanitarian crisis with an unstable crisis, an unstable political environment in Venezuela, with lack of democracy and a humanitarian emergency, people will continue living. But then we also need to protect those who leave, right? And one of our, our one of my biggest frustration, I have to say, is to see how countries um, cooperate and are able to articulate responses quickly and efficiently when it comes to enforcement. You know, if Mexico and the US need to militarize the border, it takes days. If if you know Peru and Ecuador need to send more military to the border, it takes days. You know, they meet, they agree on, on measures and, and, and joint strategies, and they happen. But when countries have to cooperate and articulate themselves to protect people, that is never fast. And mm. I have to say it's never too efficient. Uh, so if we could move away from this the building of this regional system of enforcement that we are seeing when it comes to you know protection when it comes to migration management towards a regional system of protection i think we will be somewhere else mm. but for that you need political will you need to take migration away from domestic politics and toxic narrative and make it a human rights issue and uh sadly we're not enough you know we're not seeing that and for that you need to build that political consensus around what the region needs and what democracy means in the region so we we, we i don't know if we need more summits but we clearly need more clarity on what mm. democracy is and what what human rights mean and uh, that consensus was there before perhaps, or at least it was more clear. Uh, but to see that being now broken is, uh, is alarming. Well, Carolina, thank you very much for, for your time and helping us understand this narrative a little bit better. Thank you, and thank you for having me today. Thanks so much for tuning in. There are few things more politically destabilizing than a refugee crisis. For the country experiencing outmigration, it usually means the loss of the best and the brightest and a sharp and potentially long-lasting economic downturn that can damage 
and disrupt political institutions. For the country or countries experiencing in-migration, a refugee crisis can create a strain on public resources, produce resentment, and empower politicians who exploit it. It's a pattern that you see almost everywhere, in every instance. And following this logic, it's not hard to see why leaders in Latin America, now home to up to 7 million Venezuelan refugees, are trying every strategy imaginable to bring stability to Venezuela. They've tried sanctions, they've tried summits, they've tried punishment, and now they've tried praise. And Lula's praise strategy may work. It may be just the thing to bring Maduro to the negotiating table with Venezuela's opposition. But if it does work, and if Maduro walks away with his reputation intact, and with the stories of Carlos Marón, José Vicente Haro, and thousands of others swept away into the dustbin of regrettable but forgettable moments in history, then it won't be long before another Maduro shows up, and another crisis for the region begins. Today's show marks the 50th episode of Intrigue Out Loud since we started in February, and I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening and for supporting this show, and if you like this show, if you want to see us stick around for 100, 150, 200 episodes, then leave a rating and a review and tell a friend about us. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Monday.